Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at The Canteen, a regular segment where we hear sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This Sunday, we continued it in our study of the life of David called After God's Own Heart, examining the topic of friendship. That's something that's desperately needed in our culture today, in our lives today, and we see one of the most profound friendships in all the Bible in David and Jonathan. So this week, Pastor Blake opened up 1 Samuel chapter 20. We examined David and Jonathan's friendship, looked at what it has to teach us today, uh, and allowed us an opportunity to reflect on the way that God has befriended us through Jesus Christ. So let's listen in as Pastor Blake brings this week's message. Uh, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and find 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, DJ gave us a little uh, lead in. We're going to be talking about friendship and this friendship between David and Jonathan. As you find that, I want to remind us of, um, I want to remind us of our mission here at Christ Community, right? To join Jesus in going out to make disciples who love God, love people, and love community. And uh, I love... Uh, the story that, that they're sharing about what their discipleship group looked like. Um, but also, I love how um, they are willing to lean into the awkwardness of what's next and what's happening because of the sake of relationship. Um, I really encourage you to, to make sure you find the podcast this week. Listen to that full version. Uh, just some incredible stories of how God has, has really uh, created and crafted their friendship as they make disciples together. Uh, 1 Samuel 20, a series after God's own heart. Um, I want to remind you that you're loved because of God's heart, right? Because he loves you, uh, and he wants the best for you. He wants you to live the life that he created you for. Uh, but we all know, right, we've, we've, we've experienced it even this morning, life in this world gets in the way sometimes. It makes things messy. It makes things hard. Um, life sometimes snatches our hearts. Our hearts get attached to the wrong things and things get really messy. And, and that's why God is after your heart, because he is unwilling to sit by on the sidelines and watch as you, as you struggle in this world. So he's after our hearts, and that's the core of this entire series of, of messages through the life of King David. Um, we're also leaning into this idea, right? And we're, This is going to be a full circle thing today. We're leaning into this idea that as God changes our hearts, as, as he's after him, he's calling us to join him, right, in, in being after others' hearts. We get to join the creator of the, of the universe in calling others to give their hearts to Jesus. And so we're rallying around that idea. We're keeping that at the front of our minds um, by keeping this blank in our conversations and in our prayers, that we are after fill-in-the-blank heart. After fill-in-the-blank heart. And from the beginning, the first message in this series, from the, the, the first of the year, we've asked you to be thinking about what goes in that blank. Maybe it's a specific person, a neighbor, a friend. Maybe it's a group of people. Uh, maybe it's uh, a, a, a group of people that are struggling with a certain sin or uh, a group of people that live in a certain area. Who, whose heart is God calling you to be after? And so today, we're, we're going to keep pressing back into that as we get through this, this message about friendship. We're going to open Scripture to 1 Samuel 20 and let the Spirit speak from God's Word about David's friendship with King Saul. 
King Saul's son, Jonathan, all right? So we're going to read it first, and it's a little bit long, so uh, story time with Uncle Blake, okay? It's a great story, so well written. Here we go. David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? And Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. And he has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Well, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, Look, tomorrow is the new moon, and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go, and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, Say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. And if he says, good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I've done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And he answered David, Come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. And Jonathan said, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he's favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? And if my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I don't tell you and send you away so that you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. And Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. And then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on, this day, on the day this incident began and stay beside the rock easel. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. And then I will send a servant and say, Go and find the arrows. Now if I expressly say to the servant, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them, then come. Because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no problem. But if I say this to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. Well, at the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall, and Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his place beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought, something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonial unclean. Yes, that's it. He's unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son, Jonathan, Why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, Well, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now, if I've found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. 
And that's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman! See, it's different when you read it like they're saying it. You thought I was going to mess up there, didn't you? Don't I know that you're siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. And Jonathan answered his father back. Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, Run and find the arrows I'm shooting. And as the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, The arrow is beyond you, isn't it? And then Jonathan called to him, Hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. And then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, Go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, J David got up from the south side of the stone, Ezel, fell face down to the ground, and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David left, and Jonathan went into the city. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the incredible writing that it is, but we also thank you for the way that it changes us and reveals to us the kind of love that you have for us, the kind of love that reminds us you're after our hearts. May we see that today, and may we be changed because of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Joe Simpson and Simon Yates were mountain climbing partners who in 1985 decided to climb the Peruvian Andes mountain range. They were 25 and 22 at the time. Uh, young guys, living life. Um, they were pretty fearless. And in that fearlessness and, and you know, just wanting to be good mountain climbers, they decided they were going to climb the west face of Sola Grande. And as they reached the summit of that mountain a bad storm settled in. So in a hurry to get down the mountain, they're trying to get down in the middle of the storm, and Joe slipped on ice and broke his leg. I, I mean, that, that alone, can you imagine? And so Simon Yates had the first of many decisions to make. Would he abandon his partner to save his own life, or would he help Joe get off the mountain, which put him at considerable risk of dying himself? Together, they came up with a plan. They had about 300 feet of rope that they had, and so they tied them all together, and Yates would lower Joe Simpson down the side of the mountain 300 feet at a time. He would brace himself as he lowered Joe down, and he would wait for the, the slack of the line to come and, and a tug from Joe telling him that he was at a safe resting place. And then Yates would climb down the mountain 300 feet, and they would repeat that process. It would take them about 10 or 11 times uh, to get down the mountain. The plan was slow, but it seemed to be working as they were navigating their way down the mountain through the storm. And then trouble struck once again. 
You see, when you're lowering someone 300 feet down a mountain at a time, you can't always see them, and, and not to mention the storm. And so unable to see Simpson, Joe Simpson, as he lowered him down, Simon Yates was unaware on this one descent that he had lowered Simpson over the edge of a rock face, and Simpson was just dangling in midair, disconnected to the mountain. Below him was about a 100-foot drop. So here you have Simon Yates bracing himself on the side of a mountain in a storm, holding Joe's weight, waiting for the release of tension, waiting for the tug on the line, unsure of what was really going on. For 90 minutes he sat in that position, and he began to, to feel himself giving way. He began to feel his feet, footing slip. And he remembered that in his backpack he had a knife. He pulled it out, and he cut the rope. So the question remains to this day, was Simon Yates a friend to Joe Simpson? Partners in climbing, this adventure that they'd had together, was he a friend to Joe Simpson? It begs us to ask the question, who do we trust in our life to hold our rope? And conversely, who could trust us to hold theirs? You see, that's the, the idea of friendship. We, we, Caitlin and I watched uh, the movie with uh, Tom Hanks uh, on um, Mr. Rogers this week. And in that movie, uh, Mr. Rogers talks about sign language for friend, right? And you take your two fingers and, and you go like this, and, and that's sign language for friend. And he uses that a couple of times in the movie, right? And it's, it's this idea that we hold on to one another. We, we, are, we are linked. We are connected. Who do we trust to hold our rope and who, who could trust us to hold theirs? Because the reality is, is we find it really hard in our world to trust others. It's getting harder and harder, I might add. And, and when we're unable to trust, we are unable to have meaningful friendships. Um, mistrust in life only continues to breed more mistrust. And Psalm 88 verse 18 then becomes something that most of us probably express or have felt at times like this. When the psalmist says to God, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me, darkness is my only friend. Darkness is my only friend. In those moments, loneliness sets in. We need good friends. We need friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. A study in Australia followed 300,000 people for seven and a half years. In that study, they found that people with strong social ties or good friends had a 50% higher survival rate than those who did not. You say, well, what's that mean? When they begin to compare that to other things in this world, it meant that not having strong friendships is more deadly than obesity. It's more deadly than not exercising. It means that not having strong friendships was comparable to, to being an alcoholic or a smoker. In other words, not having good, healthy, strong friendships is deadly. And yet, most of us would say that friendship is really elusive. C.S. Lewis called it the least natural of loves in his work, The Four Loves, in which he explores the, the different Greek words that Scripture uses for, for love. And it's because that friendship is the least natural of loves that we often give up on it and we settle for something else. A couple weeks ago, I introduced this idea that, that there's kind of two ditches on either side of the road to friendship love. One is sex, 
and the other is success. And so often in, in our desire, our need for true friendship, we end up on, in one of those ditches as opposed to on the road to, to friendship. I want to think about those for just a moment because uh, so often when we read this passage in 1 Samuel 20 about David and Jonathan's friendship, we often want to drive it into one of those ditches. When it comes to sex, ever since the incident in the Garden of Eden, shame has accompanied sex in our broken world. And it's led to us using all sorts of phrases and euphemisms to, to talk about sex. One of the phrases that we use to describe a relationship that has a sexual component is to say that they are more than friends. Right? You've, you've maybe used that, or you've heard it. Well, I think they're probably more than friends. Maybe we even use that to explain to our kids at times. But I want to ask us to, to question that phrase for just a moment. Do you catch the subtlety of the lie? It's a seemingly harmless phrase that many of us throw around, but it actually begins to elevate sex over friendship as opposed to valuing them as equal yet unique expressions of love. Lewis again notes, very few people think friendship is a love of comparable value or even a love at all. We just think that it's this thing that, that should happen. Paul writes in Romans one twenty four about humanity when he says this, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Verse 25 goes on to use the words, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You see, when we buy the lie that sex makes us more than friends, we automatically devalue friendship. The value of friendship goes away. And if we keep buying the lie that we can be more than friends, it in turn causes us to believe that our desire for close relationships should lead to sex. It's not that sex is bad or that friends are bad, but we shouldn't compare them to one another or stack them up and say that one is better than the other. You see, the lie becomes that with friendships with the same sex, they should lead to sex if they have any merit. In fact, our physical bodies, which are subject to the brokenness of sin, right? They actually begin to produce chemicals that reinforce that lie and increase those passions and desires within us. Most either give in to that or they overcorrect by avoiding close friendships with the same sex altogether. You see, when we compare two things that aren't meant to be compared, it ends up telling us this lie that one is better than the other. And when we do that, right, we... we miss out on what God has for us and what we need in true friendship. And when we do that, we become lonely. And in our loneliness, the enemy has another lie up his sleeve, right? And that's success. That's the other ditch. If I can be successful, if I can achieve or obtain, everyone will want to be my friend. That's kind of what's going on uh, subconsciously. Like, that's what's going on. Proverbs 19.6 says this, Many seek a ruler's favor, and everyone is a friend of one who gives gifts. It's like, if I can just be that person, I will get friends, if I can be successful. And so we use anything at our disposal to be successful. Most of us, uh, most of all, right, we use our friends, quote unquote. They're like a commodity. We begin to believe that the more we have, the bigger our platform, the more that we can accomplish. We can be an influencer. Funny enough, that study in Australia also revealed that lots of friendly acquaintances actually amps up loneliness and insecurity. And while we might quickly think of social media as doing that to us, we should also realize that 
We've been living this out in real life for a long time. You see, when we run from thing to thing, working to not miss out on every opportunity, we're actually setting ourselves up for lonely insecurity that can quite literally lead to death. We're trying to build our network. We're trying to get more friends. We're trying to be more successful. When we try to be everything to everyone, we find ourselves with nothing to give. And here's what's scary. We're often teaching our kids and our grandkids to do the exact same thing. We're discipling them in this path of success. Many before me have said some version of, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. So this road to friendship, right? Like we need friendship. And for so many of us, we end up in one of those two ditches. We end up saying, well, I can't have close friends if it doesn't lead to sex. And, and on, on the other, like, I'm just going to try to be really successful and, and get friends that way. And so if there were a biblical ro- roadmap for, for how to stay on the road to healthy friendship, I believe it's, it's David and Jonathan's relationship in 1 Samuel 20. And even then, right, most, most want to try and push their relationship into one of those two ditches. Listen, there's no way that David and Jonathan were really that close. They had to be more than friends. What was all that crying and kissing that they do about? Like, what? Nah. Maybe it's the other side, right? David was just using Jonathan. He knew he was the heir to the throne, and he just wanted to get Jonathan on his side. He just wanted to be successful. And so we, we try to push this really good picture of friendship into one of those two ditches. But I believe that when we open this text and and peel it apart a little bit, we're going to see this faithful covenant love that reflects the love of Jesus for us. I think that we're going to see clearly that this is a roadmap for for how to be a friend and how the friendship love of God is one that never abandons you, that never abandons you. God, as we come to 1 Samuel 20, God has already rescued David from several of Saul's attempts to kill him. In in chapter 19, which we kind of skipped over in our preaching series, right? Uh, We we learn that that David has gone ahead, he's married Michael, and and then Saul begins to try and kill David. He chases him out of town, and then he continues to follow him, trying to kill him. And David, in desperation, has now run back to his friend Jonathan to figure out what in the world is going on. And as we read and as, as we kind of see and hear, Jonathan is, is really in the dark to everything that's going on. Saul has intentionally left him out of these conversations. Two weeks ago, we, we read about the beginning of this relationship between David and Jonathan. And Scripture mentioned a covenant that was made. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3 said, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. David has been running for his life. He's left his home. He's left his wife. And it's this covenant that he references when he makes his appeal to Jonathan. It's the reason that he comes back to him in the midst of this trial. And when he does, Jonathan's in a bit of disbelief. Dad? My dad? He, he wouldn't do that. I mean, I mean, he might, I guess. But, but, I mean, I would know about it, right? I'm his boy. And David, in, I think, the friendliest voice he can muster, lets Jonathan know that he might be a little bit blind to what's really happening. So he asked Jonathan to run this little test for him, right? Tell your dad I can't make the new moon luncheon, and let's see how he responds. And to convince Jonathan to run his test, he appeals back to their covenant. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, deal kindly with your servant. That, that word, deal kindly with, right? The Hebrew word also means to show loyalty to. 
Be loyal to me, to your servant, for you've brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. So he comes back and he appeals to this, this covenant. Because of that, Jonathan agrees. And when David appeals to the covenant, Jonathan recognizes this might be serious. He's not just, he's not just coming to me and asking for a favor. Like He's saying, if you really love me as a friend like you say you do, you're going to listen to what I have to say. So they get out of town. They go outside the, the, the town and they begin to talk about this. And, and when they do, uh, Jonathan wants to honor the covenant. But not just that, he doubles down on it. Verses 16 and 17 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. This isn't just about David anymore. It's with the house of David saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. And you think, well, that that sounds nice. But may I remind you that this could literally mean that this might include Saul. And Jonathan, I think, has to know this. He has to recognize this. He's saying, man, hold my dad accountable if he becomes your enemy. And then Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. You heard the rest of the story. It's wonderfully written. It's full of all kinds of details and emotions and actions. And in the end, David and Jonathan have to part ways. But notice what they do as they leave. They reaffirm the covenant again. Now, Scripture could have let this be the end of the story. Like, hey, we get it. 1 Samuel 20, they're friends, they made a covenant, and then life happened, and they couldn't be friends anymore. They could have left it there. But the story of Jonathan and David's friendship wasn't over because of that covenant commitment that had been made. Not just to love each other as themselves, but also that their offspring would honor this covenant forever. A few chapters later, Saul is still on the chase, and Jonathan is still fighting in Saul's army. And so the question becomes, a few years into this, would Jonathan and David still be friends? Right? They've had to go separate ways. They've been apart for a while. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 15 through 18 says this. David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Oh, no big deal. Saul's here. He's trying to kill me. Then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God. Can you, ima- like, can you just imagine me in that situation for a minute? Jonathan is literally fighting in the army that's trying to kill you, and he comes to you. Do you trust him? Jonathan encourages him in his faith, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. And then the two of them, what's it say? Made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horesh while Jonathan went home. I mean, this is, this is incredible stuff. To think that after all this and through this, they would remain committed to that covenant, that they would continue to be friends. But what would happen after one of them died? I mean, surely at some point, they, you know, they'd just move on with life. Well, Jonathan dies first in battle. And after David grieves and, and after he becomes king, he asks, are there any descendants left? Is there anybody left uh, that, that is related to Jonathan. He learns about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who scripture says was injured in both feet, an invalid in that society. David invites him to his table. And when Mephibosheth shows up a little scared, this is what David says in 2 Samuel 9, 7. Don't be afraid, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. 
I mean, that is faithful love. That's a love that never abandons the covenant that was made, no matter what it costs. You say, okay, Blake, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Like, I thought we were a Christ community church. Like, he's the hero of the story, right? But I'm, like, we're just talking about David and Jonathan. I thought, I thought Jesus had to come. I haven't heard anything about him. Check this out. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, left his father's side and went outside the city to save the life of his father's enemy, who was actually the heir to the throne. And he did it because of a promise. That's a real friend. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ the rightful heir to the throne of heaven, left his father, went outside the city gates to save the lives of all those who through sin had become enemies of God. And for all who believe in him, he gave the right to be co-heirs to the throne because of a promise. That's a friend. You see, Jesus will never abandon you. He is a friend that will never abandon you. If you're in that ditch of, of sex, he will never abandon you. If you're in that ditch of success, he will never abandon you. If you are completely lonely today, he will never abandon you. If because of sin, you are so far from God that you have, like, you're farther than you've ever been, he will never abandon you. Jesus will never abandon you as a friend. You see, Jesus was way more than a nice guy or a great teacher. He was more than a friendly guy with good manners. He was even more than a great master to work for. He was and is a true friend who kept his promise to love you more than he loved himself. How did he do that? Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood, so that he might make you right again, so that by his friendship, by being close to you, he might change your life through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Bearing his disgrace. What does that have anything to do with being a friend? See, you and I, in this world, we're told that being a friend is really about manners, being nice, but you have to be more than friendly. You have to be a friend. As believers, yes, we should be people of high moral character because we have the Spirit of God living in us, pushing us to holiness. We should be friendly people to all. But you and I must be more than friendly. You and I must be a friend. And to be a true friend is going to require you to suffer, to, to bear disgrace, to love someone more than you love yourself. And this text gives you and I at least two ways to be friends that I want to challenge us with today quickly. It comes in the first verse, and it comes in the last verse. In the first verse, we read this. David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked. He asked. And then he asked some really tough questions. And that's the first thing that I think we can do. Ask tough questions. That's a way to be a true friend. What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life. David asks some really tough questions. Friends ask tough questions. David is asking these tough questions because he wants his friend, Jonathan, to understand how serious the situation is. 
Proverbs 27, 6 says, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Are excessive. So the question becomes, how do we wound a friend? How do we ask tough questions of a friend? We've got to find a safe place to talk. We have to ask permission. We ask open-ended questions. Perhaps more than anything, we don't offer false hope. But what do these tough questions address? They address the sin that's in our lives. Right? How hard is it to ask someone, anyone, sometimes even your own spouse, about unhealthy patterns in their life? Hey, can I ask you a question about the pride that I've seen creeping up? Can I ask you a question about the grief and the anger that I see coming from you that isn't being dealt with? Hey, can I ask you a question about this sin that I'm not even sure you're aware of is going on in your life? Tough questions ask questions about bad habits. Hey, can I ask you a hard question about your relationship with drugs, or alcohol, or pornography? Can I ask you a tough question about lying or misrepresenting yourself? Tough questions get asked about ungodly attitudes that live within us. Tough questions are tough. But a true friend asks tough questions. Asking tough questions happens because you've denied yourself in the relationship over time. And that's exactly what we see happen at the end of the chapter in verse 42, 41 and 42. It says, when the servant had gone, right, they're out in the field, and the servant has gone, David got up from the south side of the stone, Azel, fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. And then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, The Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. There is so much going on here. And it's all about this selfless friendship love. I mean, first, David pays homage to Jonathan three times. It's, it's a respect to royalty. It was the way that you showed someone that, that you respected their royal position. And this is coming from the guy who is anointed as the next king of Israel. He knows that throne is his, but he still respects Jonathan as the prince in this moment. But this is also saying without words what they both understand. That they're going to have to separate. They're both going to have to give up things, and they know it. And so they hug, and they kiss, which is a sign of loyalty in Jewish culture. If you want to try to make more of this, uh, Aaron kissed his brother Moses just in case you're wanting there to be more, and there's more examples of that, right? Like, this is not, it is not more than friends. And they cry. And then Jonathan reaffirms the covenant, which is huge. But then, perhaps the line that summarizes denying self. Then David left, and Jonathan went into the city. You see, that, that day before, when Jonathan walked away from his father's table... Jonathan was giving up a kingdom for the love of a friend. But now, he was walking away from that very friend because he loved him as well. He, he was between a rock and a hard place, right? He was walking back into a difficult situation with his dad because he loved his friend and knew that that was what was best for him. Not because it was easy for Jonathan. And so now we have this situation where David and Jonathan were both walking away from what they wanted and towards what the Lord had called them to. 
to walk towards what the Lord has called you to, even when it conflicts with what you want, is difficult. But we can trust that as we do that, we will actually be the friend that Christ has called us to be. And it brings us back to the blank. After whose heart? Who's God putting in that blank? And what can you walk away from this week so that you can walk towards that calling in your life? Are you willing to deny yourself, to walk away from something that you desire in order to see whoever is in that blank come to know God's love for them? That's a true friend. Someone who will ask tough questions and who will deny themselves. I don't want to leave you hanging on Joe and Simon's story. Joe Simpson wrote this. Simon Yates hung on for what seemed like a lifetime. And then I found myself free-falling. I hit the ridge of the, cr- hit the, ridge of the crevasse and went through. Crevasse is one of those big things, right? The glacier meets the mountain and there's a big crack in the middle. He hit the ridge of the crevasse and then went through. I saw the hole in the roof 70 plus feet above me and thought, Simon's gone flying. He's gone. He thought that Simon had just fallen off the side of the mountain and they were falling together. He said, then I pulled on the rope thinking that it would come tied to his body. And I was thinking that... I could use it as a counterweight and climb up the rope. But as I pulled on the rope, the end of the rope lashed down around me, and I saw that Simon had cut it. Joe Simpson said, people have asked me, were you angry with Simon? He said, I wasn't. He said, I thought to myself, thank God Simon's alive. Apart from being my friend, He was useful to me alive. He might be coming down to look for me. Joe Simpson, I I still don't know how he did this. It's incredible. He crawled out of the bottom of the crevasse, and when he did, he actually saw Simon's rope, the one that he had used to climb down. And he wrote, when I saw that rope, I now knew I was on my own. You don't come back for a corpse. That that was a sobering moment. It's gut-wrenching to think about what he went through to survive. It took him three and a half days to crawl back to camp. He had a broken leg, right? He's crawling in sub-zero temperatures. It took him 11 days to get to a hospital. But there was a line, right, that caught me in Joe's writing, you don't come back for a corpse. But that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what a friend would do. When I was spiritually dead because of sin, right? Jesus had come back for my corpse, not to bury it, but to resurrect it and to give me new life. And there might be moments where it feels like Jesus has cut the rope, where we feel alone, where we feel and experience loneliness, but we know and trust that Jesus never abandons us. And he wants to remind each of us of that today so that we might be friends to those who need it. Today, you may feel like you're hanging from a cliff with nowhere to go, but but crashing to your death. You need to know that Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He's coming for you. You are not on your own. 
You may feel like you don't have a friend in the world that you could call. Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He's coming for you. You are not on your own. You may feel like you've been lost and in survival mode and crawling through sub-zero temperatures for years, but you need to know that Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He's coming for you. You are not on your own. You may feel like everything in you is broken, shattered, and it's not worth trying anymore. But friends, Jesus has not abandoned you. He's coming for you. You're not on your own. He'll meet you right here today. Maybe you feel like a spiritual corpse. Maybe you realize that you are broken and dead because of sin, but he is ready to resurrect your spiritual corpse. And though the work is done on the inside, we get to celebrate it with you when you come up out of the waters of baptism. Celebrating the old life dead in the water and the new life raised in him. Every person who celebrated that new life in Christ through baptism is invited tell everyone the story of how Christ died for them by taking the Lord's Supper. As we respond here in just a couple minutes, that's exactly what we do. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today, whether you're spiritually dead and you need to talk about how Jesus raises you to life and, and give your life to him and, and picture that in baptism, or whether that's happened for you and you're going to take communion and you're going to remember that Jesus never abandons you, and you're going to celebrate that together with our family and proclaim that to all who would see we all get to worship a God that never abandons us, that is our friend and shows us and models for us and teaches us through his word what it is to be a true friend. Not just friendly, but a true friend. We pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for being a friend. A friend that never abandons us. Lord, we, we just confess to you that too often we run under our own power. We try to do this thing on our own. But that's not the way you designed it. You designed us to run with you and with others. And we need you, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you would work in the life of all those who are here this morning. And that if there's anyone who is in need of you, spiritually dead, that you would just show them that they, they can run to you. Lord, I pray that you would be with each of us, that if we're lonely and trying to do this thing on our own, that you would give us the courage to press into community. That you would help us not to just think about what it looks like to be a friendly person, but, but to find and be true friends. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way. May we honor you as we respond this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. 
Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.